Thank you for choosing the OECD podcast. Welcome to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. I'm here with Jeremiah Prassel, who is Associate Professor in Law at Oxford University in England and the author of Humans as a Service, The Promise and Perils of Work in the Gig Economy. So welcome, Jeremiah. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, I think we could start by asking, what exactly is the gig economy? That's a great question, because actually there are lots of different labels out there, right? People talk of the sharing economy, the collaborative economy, the gig economy. The way I define it is any kind of service or platform, app based on the internet, that uses digital intermediation to essentially make labour available to people. Could be in one city, could be a particular service, think of apps like Uber or Fedora or Deliveroo. But could also be purely on the internet and international, right? Think of services like Amazon Mechanical Turk or a design platform like Upwork. Right, or translation services or accounting, all those things Absolutely, we can yeah, do remotely. So how is a gig worker then different from a person, for example, who gets work from a temp agency? Well, actually, one of the things I talk about in the book is what I call the innovation paradox. And that's the idea that even though the gig economy at first sight looks like it's something quite different and distinct because of the really clever use of technology, matching algorithms, rating systems, in reality, the underlying business model isn't really distinct at all and isn't novel at all. So I think when you try to work out what the distinction is between somebody who gets dispatched, say, just using a text message or, or even just a clipboard and a, and a logbook, well, in terms of the underlying economics and the labour market implications, there's very little difference. But the algorithms does make it quite different in terms of rating the worker or also in terms of setting fees too. There is a difference there, isn't there? I think there's a difference how it's done, but not necessarily what the business model is, right? Again, so what the algorithm does is it does really quick, good matchmaking. So, you know, this is the old sort of Pissarides problem in the labour market, making sure that supply and demand are matched. Well, you could do that with a big ledger book, or you could do it with an algorithm. Now, obviously, the algorithm is going to be much faster and much more efficient in doing it, but I don't think it's necessarily fundamentally different. Same is true for a rating system, right? Again, you would have various reputational mechanisms. You look back at temporary agency workers, and in the 1960s and 70s already, you've got stories of people who've got a reputation for not accepting shifts they're offered, and then not being offered future work. So again, even though it all looks sort of very new and scientific, with our four and a half out of five stars and all of that, I'm not sure how new it really is. In fact, we can go all the way back to the 18th century. And one of the most fascinating things I discovered is the way dock labour was organised in Marseille, in Liverpool, in New York, was in a sense exactly the same way that the gig economy works today. Powerful middlemen, using some sort of formal or informal rating system and then taking that cut of 20 to 25% out of the wages paid. And what would be the equivalent to the deactivation that occurs when your ratings have really plummeted? Mm -hmm. You simply wouldn't be offered um, future work, right? And that's something we see that's really interesting in things like zero-hours contracts in the United Kingdom or other forms of flexible work. Actually, this sort of lack of certainty as to your next engagement becomes a really important control factor during each engagement, but also shifts, in a sense, the risk of the business onto the individual worker. So given all that, that, that is actually perhaps an old form of work or an old form of labour, but in new guise and new mm. digital guise, is there also 
questions about the category that these workers are in. What is their legal status? They're not employees, but they're not exactly independent contractors. What's your view on that? Well, that's something that's being hotly litigated all over the world at the moment. And uh, indeed, uh, we just had a case in the UK Supreme Court two weeks ago on that very question. So I think to put it very crudely, most legal systems have this binary divide. You've already hinted that, right? Either you're an employee within the scope of protective norms or you're an independent contractor outside the scope of these norms. Now, one thing that I've been looking at in some detail is how various factors can disguise work. Right. So something that should be in this first category of the employee actually sort of artificially pushed into um, the second category. There's a Could you give me an example of that? Absolutely. I think there's a couple of things. Language. Right. It starts very simple. One of the things that's really interesting about the gig economy is that we no longer talk of work. We talk of gigs. We talk of tasks, of rides, of hits, human intelligence tasks on Amazon Mechanical Turk. Deliveries. Um, deliveries. And um, one of my favorite platforms, I think, refers to its workers as heroes who deliver favors. But it's not just language. Contract law is the next important thing, right? Again, you sort of insert contractual terms and clauses, stipulating, essentially trying to characterise the worker as an independent contractor, even if that's not necessarily the case. And why do companies do that? Well, because at least in the short term, it looks quite attractive to not have to pay the various forms of compensation and the other obligations that come with that. As well as the social security obligations. Social security, tax. I mean, a lot of tax systems were set up to incentivize this, not just on the employer side, actually, but also on the employee side. The third factor that sort of disguises work, and that's really interesting, and that is new and different in the gig economy, is technology. Right? It's really interesting. There's some really interesting stuff done by sociologists like Lily Arani at the University of California who look at the way technology, being the intermediary, hides the fact that work is going on. And people sort of, you know, interact now with the gig economy through beautiful apps and screens and end up thinking, gosh, I just push a couple of buttons on my phone and the burger appears outside my door. Right. And again, I think that's got a really interesting sort of facet to play here in hiding the fact that this is actually labor and making it look more like this is just cool digital innovation. So are you saying that there is a psychological effect that it becomes too seamless, that we forget that there are humans who are delivering that burger? Absolutely. And that's where the idea of humans as a service comes from in the title of the book. Right. I actually, this is the worst thing to admit for an academic, I plagiarized that title. I didn't oh, come did up you? with it myself. Um, it's Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who, when he introduces Amazon Mechanical Turk at MIT about 10 years ago, goes on stage and says, well, you know what? Through Amazon Web Services, we can sell computing as a service. We can sell storage as a service. And the next big product is going to be humans as a service. Right. And as labor lawyers, we obviously start with the opposite end, the founding declaration of Philadelphia of the International Labor Organization, which says that labor is not a commodity. And those two things can jar quite quickly. Right. Labor is not a commodity versus humans as a service. So how can we best, given the three factors that you laid out earlier and this psychology of humans as a service, how can we best protect these people who have to get their own legal status to work, who pay for their own social security, who don't have any work security. What are the options open to us? Well, I think it's really important that we don't fall into some form of technological exceptionalism, right? I think overall, the platform economy has some really positive potential for the labor market, for consumers, for workers. And so I think we need to find a way, in a sense, of preserving those good elements of the gig economy whilst avoiding the sort of pure shifting of risk onto the individual. 
And the solution to that is employment law, right? It has to start with employment law. And actually, when it comes to these various factors of disguising work, courts all over the world are looking through it, right? You had the UK Supreme Court um, 10 days ago saying that, gosh, this all looks really complex. But if we look at the detail of the complexity, it's just the weird contractual drafting that's being used. And so, like courts all over the world, the Supreme Court said, we're not going to be bamboozled by this contractual terminology. We're going to look at the reality, which is tight control and an integrated service delivery. And that's work. And employment law should capture that. So are they considered as employees? I know that there was a UK employment tribunal, a case brought by two drivers for Uber against the company. And they ruled that they were, in fact, employees and that, you know, the same sort of contractual bamboozling. They were saying, well, no, the work that they do, they're employees. Is that what you're advocating? That they should be considered employees with so fuller, full protection? This is a slightly weird quirk of English employment law. They're not quite technically employees, they're workers. Because when I said earlier that there's this binary divide between independent contracts and employees, actually that's a slight oversimplification because some jurisdictions have a sort of intermediate category wedged in between, which is worker status in the UK. Um, but essentially, for all intents and purposes, it's the same uh, thing, for example, when it comes to minimum wage, when it comes to discrimination protection, when it comes to working time protection. And yes, I think the starting point for us has to be not to invent some great new gig economy law, but actually to enforce existing provisions. You're saying that if they are categorized as workers, according to the UK definition of it, then there is already an existing status for them and there's really no problem. I would agree with the first part of that statement, not necessarily the second one, right? So I think once you categorize as worker, you get access to certain baseline protections, things like the minimum wage, things like discrimination law. The other factors, like the sort of one-sided flexibility, which can become insecurity quite quickly, that you don't deal with, right? Because then you're still in a world of zero hours contracting. So there's still a challenge there, but I think the starting point has to be saying, well, actually, anybody who employs a worker needs to comply with that. Okay. How many uh, gig workers are there, say, in OECD countries right now? I can find you as many statistics as there are econometricians out there, I'm afraid. Everything from, you know, you're looking at 100,000 people through to you're looking at 50 million people. Um, the most realistic estimates seem to tend to be somewhere between 1% and 3% of labour markets, with a very quick growth rate, albeit, of course, from a base of zero. So not a big deal, then? In terms of the gig economy itself, probably not that big a deal, right? I think in the UK, it's still safe to say that more people are employed by the NHS, probably, than they are in the gig economy. And yet we're not talking today about NHS employment. The reason why it's still is such an important area to think about and study is that the gig economy is, in a sense, just the sharpest end of a much bigger area of problems in the labour market. So when you think about the key elements of the gig economy, the shifting of the risk, this moving away from one long-term job to lots of short, intermittent bits of work, possibly for multiple employers. Those are things we've seen in labour markets in most OECD countries for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And so in that sense, again, it's this important bit. We shouldn't be bamboozled by the technology, but actually we should look at the underlying impact for the labour market. And there, the challenges we see in the gig economy are relevant across the labour market. I have one last question to ask, and that's about collective bargaining. Uh, there has been some talk about it that gig workers could join together and, you know, ask for collective rights. But there is a problem with antitrust and anti-competition laws, especially in the United States. Could you expand on that? So again, a prima facie hinges on the fact that are you self-employed, are you own business undertaking or not? If 
um, workers in the gig economy are generally self-employed, then their banding together to, for example, bargain for wage rates would be an anti-competitive um, problem. I could you say that again? I don't. I don't. Didn't hear what that was. So, if you've got lots of small businesses, right? Let's assume for a moment that the contractual classification is correct, and each worker is her own business. Then, if she gets in touch with lots of other workers to set wage rates, that's price fixing, which is something competition law um, is very much designed to avoid. However, there's two caveats for that. First of all, especially in European Union law, the Court of Justice, in a decision called FNV Kunsten a couple of years ago, made it very clear that also for competition law, just the contractual classification wasn't enough. So if you had people who were contractually classified as self-employed, and therefore potentially within the scope of employment law, uh, competition law, if in reality they were actually much more akin to workers, then competition law wouldn't apply. So we come back to workers as a status. Absolutely. But also there's another interesting twist with competition law, which is, of course, that if they are all genuinely self-employed people, the other question about competition law is about the platforms. Because if you've got 30,000 independent businesses in London all using a particular app to set the prices for a service like delivery or um, transport, well, actually, competition law might get involved there as well. But on the other side? On the other side of the equation. And has there been any kind of movement in that direction, any kind of realisation? There's some early litigation on this, I'm aware of, in Canada, but so far I haven't seen any litigation in the UK or the EU on this point. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's a great look at the question of the gig economy. It's a great book. And I think it's going to make um, some real changes in the industry. Fingers crossed. Thank you very much. This is OECD Podcast, and thank you for listening.